Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Quite a while back, we were talking about Constantine, who, after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, instituted religious toleration in the Roman Empire, ending persecution, first in the West and later in the East when he defeats his rival Licinius. And Constantine basically brought the whole empire together under his sole rule. Before this, you had what a previous emperor Diocletian had called the Tetrarchy, which meant rule by four. So, Diocletian recognized that the empire was so big and so sprawling that a little before the year 300, he divvied it up. He divided the West between a senior emperor, who he called an Augustus, and a junior emperor, who he called a Caesar, and then the East into the reign of a senior emperor, an Augustus, and a junior Caesar. So you have these four emperors kind of ruling together, sometimes not so much ruling together, ostensibly under the authority, ultimately, of the Augustus of the East, in practice, uh, all kind of doing their own things. So under Constantine, everything is brought back under this one powerful figure of himself. And he is a force of nature. He is doing so much. He is controlling everything. He is ruling everything. He's holding it all together. He's winning wars. But he recognizes that his gifts are fairly unique. And when he's old, when he's dying, he decides to return to this tetrarchy structure. And he divides up the empire among his three sons and his nephew. Emperors are not like kings. They don't necessarily pass on the role of the king to their children nor are they like elected officials. It's not as though everyone on a certain date goes to the polling place and votes for the emperor. Instead, emperor is actually a military office. It's a military title. So the, the, the Latin term emperor actually comes from this term for field marshal. It is um, a high-ranking military official. And so an emperor technically is actually chosen by the armies emperors are acclaimed by the army. So the army comes together and they said, this guy will be our emperor. Hooray! The problem is that you have lots of different armies throughout the Roman Empire who don't necessarily agree. So at times they elect multiple emperors and then those armies have to fight it out to decide which emperor becomes the actual emperor, all of whom are claiming to be the emperor. Anyway, so Constantine says, my three kids, Constantine the second, junior, Constantius II, named after his grandfather, and Constans, plus their cousin, will be the Augusti and Caesars of the Roman Empire after I'm gone. But the army says, you know, we really just like Constantine. He was so fantastic. Why don't we just keep this in the family? And so they murder his nephew, who is supposed to be one of the four ruling emperors. So now you just have these three. You have Constantine II, you have Constantius II, and you have Constans. So Constantine Jr., he is the ruler of the western provinces of the empire. He's the Augustus of the West. So 
Constantine II is ruling over modern-day Britain and modern-day France, parts of modern-day Germany, Western Europe, basically. Um, Constantius II is the ruler of the East. So Constantius is ruling over modern-day Turkey, modern-day Syria, and at this time in the Roman Empire, those are really the heart of the empire. That's where all the money was. That's where all the power was. So he was in this very powerful part of the empire. Constans is ruling over Italy and North Africa. So he is emperor over the Italian peninsula, but also modern-day Libya, modern-day Egypt, Tunisia, parts of Algeria, which at this time is one of the big bread baskets of the empire. This is where a ton of the empire's grain comes from, especially the grain to feed the wealthy East. So Constantius, emperor of the East, the one based in modern-day Turkey, he is really the most powerful because he is in really the seat of power. His throne is in Constantinople, the city of Constantine, the new Rome. And he has an interest in theology. And his interest is primarily oriented towards our old friend, or maybe not friend, but acquaintance, Arius of Alexandria. And if you remember from way back when we were talking about the Council of Nicaea, Arius was this priest from Alexandria, this great city in Egypt, probably the second most or third most important city of the entire Roman Empire. Huge metropolis, super wealthy, tons of power, tons of stuff going on there, great university life, libraries, intellectual center. And Arius is this preacher in uh, at the ports. He has this big church that's like kind of right on the docks. And so you are a merchant, you're sailing to Alexandria, you get off your ship, you go to a service to give thanks, and you hear Arius preach. And Arius is highly educated, and he is very frustrated by the fact that he will go to fancy dinner parties and people kind of mock him for being an ignorant Christian. Because at this time, if you are a well-educated person, you're a Platonist. Platonism is kind of the um, intellectual lingua franca of the day, and everything is articulated in terms of Platonic ideas. And when everyone's bantering about, you know, the demiurge, creating the world and so forth, all this like Platonic stuff, and you're just kind of sitting there silently, and they're like, well, when, how do you think the Demiurge created the world when he was sent by the Platonic One to form the natural material? And you're like, well, I don't actually believe that. I, I'm a Christian, so I just believe God created everything. I don't know what the Demiurge is. I don't think God made some like weird monster that created things on his behalf that either did a good job or did a bad job, depending on which Platonic school you subscribe to. That's not my thing. And people are like, oh, you're one of those. Oh, well, sorry, uh, pa pass the bacon, please. So Arius was sick of being dissed at dinner parties. We assume. I'm kind of taking some liberties here with his story. But what we do know about Arius is that he melded together Platonism and Christianity. And he created this seamless hybrid between the two. And he did this by saying that Jesus is not God. Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not eternal. Jesus is God's first creation, God's right-hand man, God's highest angel. And it is through this high angel that he creates everything. The, the, the highest angel, Jesus, does God's bidding and forms the land, forms the seas, forms all matter. 
And this looks exactly like what Plato talks about when he talks in the Timaeus about this creature created by God to form and shape the world, the demiurge, the public worker. And so by taking some liberties with the story of Christianity, by playing kind of fast and loose with Revelation, by basically throwing out a lot of Christian stuff and importing a lot of Platonic stuff, he creates this great hybrid such that now he can go to the wine bar and sidle up to the bar and start talking Platonism with somebody, and there's really no problem because they're all on the same page. So a lot of Christians heard all this and they were like, oh, this is fantastic. I mean, now there are really no problems in, you know, I don't have to leave religion off the table when I get into uh, discussions at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, I can just, I'm basically just like all my neighbors. Like, we're all good Platonists, and I also happen to be a Christian. I'm sort of from the Christian school of Platonism. Like, we interpret Plato in a kind of Christian-y way. The church, the rest of the church, however, said, no, that's insane. We are not pagan Platonists, we are Christians. This is a whole different system of thought. The two are radically different. Certainly that one can inform the other, maybe one has informed the other a lot, but they are different. Ultimately, when you get down to it, almost all of the heresies of Christianity are not creative thinking. So, We live in a culture in which being creative, thinking outside the box, coming up with new ideas, being entrepreneurial, being Steve Jobs is the goal, in a sense. Like, the more original you are, the more creative you are, the more you found a new artistic movement, the more you create some new piece of technology, the better. Like, you're doing a great job if you're super duper original in your thought. And there's a lot to be said for that. That's great in painting. That is great in developing microchips. However, when you're trying to improve upon God, and if you're trying to wrap your mind around God and re-articulate things in a way better than God articulated them, that's kind of crazy because we can't even conceptualize God, much less understand everything about God, much less improve upon God. So we at times want to see the heretics as these entrepreneurial, outside-the-box, super creative thinkers taking things in a new and better direction. But in fact, almost all the heresies are not improvements, and they're not creative. They're not even thinking outside the box. All the heresies, in fact, are reductionist. They are taking something too complex to completely understand and making it totally understandable by knocking off all the edges, knocking off all the mystery, knocking off all the truth, and taking a God-sized statement and making it into a teeny, tiny, comprehensible, human-sized statement that is no longer true of God. So if you have a revelation like Jesus is fully God and fully human, if you think you totally understand that, you're not listening because that is completely incomprehensible. That is so much bigger than we can wrap our minds around. But if you take that statement and you say like, well, that's a little confusing. Let's just reduce that a little bit. Let's just say Jesus is totally human, but not divine. Not divine in the sense of like, he is actually God. More divine in the sense of like, he has some divine ideas. He has divine, oh, this chocolate is divine. He's divine in that way. He's just fantastic. He's likable. He's brilliant. He's not God. 
Or, on the other hand, you can say, okay, he's God. This is God coming down to earth. This is God visiting his people, leading his people, saving his people. But he's not a guy. Like, he's not just a regular old rabbi from some dusty village in the middle of nowhere. He might look like it. Maybe it's God sort of play acting at being human or God kind of appearing in like a hologram as Tupac Shakur did at one famous Coachella festival in history, but it's not actually, it's not actually God being a human. He can't, God can't be a human being. He's infinite and eternal. Humans are little tiny living on a rock spinning around the sun. Impossible. So heresy is taking this incomprehensible statement and reducing it to human size. And so Arius takes this incomprehensible statement, fully God and fully human, as articulated by so many of the fathers of the church, by Christianity all the way back, and by the New Testament. If you read the Gospel of John extremely explicitly for Gentiles, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's also extremely explicit if you look at it from a first century Jewish context. All over the place, Jesus is fully God and fully human. So Arius takes that and says, he's not God. He is the highest angel who actually did become human. This angel became born as a human being, but it's not God. Arius is roundly condemned by the church at the Council of Nicaea. Out of the 318 bishops present, 316 signed the Acts of the Council saying like, yes, we all agree. Arianism, bad. Nicene Creed, good. The other two who didn't sign weren't even Arians. They just didn't like another piece of legislation that made them, as as bishops from Libya, be under the jurisdiction of Egypt. They were like, we're Libyans, they're Egyptians, come on, can we just do our own thing? So they left. Anyway, the bishops who were at the Council of Nicaea condemned Arianism roundly. But it didn't die out. Because there were some bishops who still had some sort of Arian feelings, even though they felt that it probably wasn't wise to express them at that time. They saw that they were in the losing side, so they tried to be a little bit real politic about it and kind of go underground, but continue teaching Arianism. So one of those to whom Arianism was taught was this young man, Constantius, son of Constantine, ruler of the East. And he thinks, well, this all makes sense to me. I like this, plus going to a dinner party, having people think I'm an educated Platonist and a Christian, that doesn't hurt. So he's very favorable to the Arian cause. And Constantius puts a lot of support behind Arianism, such that Arian bishops are now being appointed within his territories. There are some problems between his brothers, Constans and Constantine, They have some problems, some altercations, they fight some wars. This other rebel rises up, tries to overthrow all of them. Eventually, both Constantine II and Constans are killed. And the rebel guy is killed, and this leaves Constantius II as the ruler of the whole Roman Empire. And so when that happens, he starts spreading his kind of Aryan tendencies more broadly. So at this time in... Christianity. You have bishops everywhere you go. Like everywhere you go, there's a diocese. The head of that diocese is the bishop, and that is ultimately the power structure of the church. There are some bishops that are kind of junior bishops called uh, bishop suffragans, and they are in very small, teeny tiny dioceses. You might have a diocese that's actually just like a little town. So um, this little town of 
500 people or whatever has their own bishop. But then you also have these kind of super bishops called metropolitans who are bishops of big metropolitan areas. So you might have a town of of 500,000 that has a bishop, and that would be a metropolitan bishop. Metropolitan bishops have some more authority than suffragan bishops. They can uh, consecrate other suffragan bishops. They can call the other bishops together in local councils. They have a lot of teaching authority. But then above them are the super-duper bishops. And these are the metropolitans of either giant cities or, or um, dioceses that were founded by the apostles that have this deep connection to the apostles. And these are called the patriarchs. And so you have one in Jerusalem, not a big city at all, teeny tiny city, way out of the way, but obviously founded by not just an apostle, but the Lord himself, the apostles, like Jerusalem, where it all went down. So there's a patriarch of Jerusalem. You also have a patriarch of Rome, where Peter was. You have a patriarch of Antioch, where Peter was. So Peter was in Antioch for a while, went to Rome eventually. And then you also have a patriarch of Alexandria. Alexandria, interestingly, is not an apostolic foundation in one sense. Instead, it's founded by Mark. So Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark, and he was the translator of Peter. So he traveled with Peter he wrote down the preachings of Peter as the Gospel of Mark. He would go with Peter wherever he was and translate into Latin or whatever. So Mark is seen as having this sort of Peter authority in founding Alexandria. It doesn't hurt that Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome are three of the biggest, most important cities of the empire. And even though it doesn't have apostolic foundation, even though it's a brand new city, Constantinople is so important, is such a metropolis, and the emperor is there, that the bishop of Constantinople is also treated as one of these patriarchs. So you have these five super-duper bishops of Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople. And so when one of these sees, one of these, um, these dioceses falls vacant, Constantius takes it upon himself to find a nice, reliable Arian to fill that spot. And just quick reminder, Arian, nothing to do with the absurd Nazi pseudoscience about race or whatever. This is just named after this guy, Arius of Alexandria. So one of these people that believes that Jesus is not God, but is like God's first creation, God's best creation, God's highest angel. So Constantius has a very Arian bishop in Constantinople. The Patriarch of Constantinople, Eusebius, is hardcore Arian. One of the most anti-Arian bishops, both before the Council of Nicaea, during the Council of Nicaea, and then now, uh, 20 years later, is this guy Athanasius of Alexandria. And Athanasius is the Archbishop of Alexandria, the Patriarch of Alexandria, the Bishop of one of the biggest, most important cities in the ancient Roman world, the, the diocese founded by St. Mark. And he is driving Constantius crazy because he is constantly like, Arianism is stupid. Uh, this is not Christianity. This has nothing to do with what you find in the New Testament. This is not what God revealed. This is just like taking this big, giant, huge, incomprehensible mystery and fitting it into a totally comprehensible human-sized package that you could give as an elevator speech. That's not what the faith is. 
And Constantius gets sick of it. Athanasius is so articulate. He writes so beautifully. He's so deeply holy in his personal life. He is such an incredible theologian that it just drives all the Arians crazy because what he writes is so compelling. And so multiple times he is uh, about to be arrested and thrown into jail to be replaced by an Arian archbishop, and uh, he flees out into the desert because all the monks that live in the Egyptian desert, all those desert fathers and mothers that we've been talking about, they love him. They're like, oh man, great theology. He's basically one of us. Let's just hang out. And so he just goes sort of from hermitage to hermitage and just spends years living as a desert father, living in rags, having a long beard, eating virtually nothing, sleeping, not at all, just spending all of his time in prayer. Eventually, the emperor will relent He'll be allowed to go back to the city, and he'll continue to serve his role as the Patriarch of Alexandria. So in 356, he is once again going to be arrested, and he gets on a ship, and he's going up the Nile, he's heading to the desert. But this time, the emperor is like, I want to catch that guy, don't let him go. So he sends all these soldiers to look for him. And a boat of Roman soldiers are approaching the boat that he's on. And it's it's just, it's getting close to the boat. It's just, it's catching up to the boat. It's just behind them. And they shout to the boat, has anyone seen Athanasius of Alexandria? And Athanasius is on this boat. Not only is he on the boat, he's actually at the back of the boat. He is like the guy that they're looking at, the guy that they're talking to as they're shouting. And so Athanasius says, yes, he's just ahead of you. And they say, oh, that's great. Uh, how far ahead? And he says, well, just hurry up and you'll catch him. <laughs> so they, he's telling the truth. He's, I am right here. I'm just ahead of you. Just hurry up and you'll catch me. And so they speed on ahead of this boat and they say, thanks. And they're waving and they're, they're driving off into the sunset, trying to find this boat that Athanasius is on just ahead of them. So Athanasius escapes time after time. He's never caught by the Roman soldiers. And he goes back into monastic solitude. But this time, rather than just leaving the sea vacant, the emperor appoints a new bishop of Alexandria, a new patriarch. It's this guy, George, and he is the most diehard of diehard Arians. He is so intensely Arian that other Arians are like, this is dumb. You're like, you're being annoying about this. Can, we're all Arians. Yeah, but can you just relax a little bit? He's very hardcore. And then the following year, the sea of Antioch, the other huge city, big metropolis, really important bishop, also becomes empty. And Constantius pulls some strings and has put in place this guy, Eudoxius. And he is also just an extremely hardcore, very intense, next-level Arian. So the reason these two guys are kind of annoying, even to the Arian party, is that by this point, most Arians kind of want to compromise with the Orthodox. They want to say, they found this formula to say that Jesus is like the Father. So, and what they mean by that, for the most part, is not just kind of a semantic way of getting out of the discussion. They want to say that Jesus is like the perfect copy of the original. So, um, you can have, let's say you have a you have the Mona Lisa that's hanging in the Louvre, and some brilliant painter comes and stands before the Mona Lisa day in and day out for six months and creates this absolutely perfect copy. And you put the two side by side, and you're like, which is the real one? I don't know. They're exactly the same. That's what they mean by like the Father. And for them, this is this way of saying 
you know, if you are a Nicene Orthodox Christian and you believe that Jesus is God, is fully divine, well, I mean, it, it makes sense to say that he's like the Father. And in this way, you're not confusing the Father and the Son. Like, you don't want to just say that it's all the same and there are no differences. There are no persons in the divinity of God, that, that Jesus and the Father are exactly the same, because clearly that's not the case. But these guys, George and Eudoxius, they are Animoians. And what they want to say, Animoian comes from this Greek word for not like. They want to put into a creed that Jesus is not like the Father. That unlike in every way, the Father is infinitely different from Jesus in exactly the same way that the Platonic one in Plato's system is infinitely different from this demiurge, this God that he creates to create the world. And so in 360, they have this new council in Constantinople. It's not an ecumenical council. It's not bishops from all over the world. But a bunch of Arian bishops get together and they're like, we're having a new council and we have a new creed. And here's the Arian creed. It's going to replace the Nicene creed. Throw that one in the trash. Get rid of your old copies. We've got a new one for you. And it talks about how unlike the Father, Christ is. And uh, the great scholar, the great... um, early church translator of scripture, St. Jerome, who was living in Jerusalem at the time, this is in the year 360, he said that the world woke up and groaned to find itself Arian. According to Henry Chadwick, who's the great English scholar of the early church, there was a huge popular support among just the people of the ancient world for Nicene Orthodoxy, that this belief that Jesus is fully God and fully human. What does that mean? Who knows? That's way above our pay grade. It's such a mystery. That was pretty normative for people in the street. But you have this small cadre of extremely well-educated Platonic bishops and court officials who are propounding Arianism, and they've taken it upon themselves to speak for the whole of Christianity. So in 360, you get this new creed under Constantius II, and in 361... Constantius dies. So when the army killed off Constantine's nephew, who was going to rule with the other three brothers, the bros, they killed off almost all the male members of Constantine's family aside from the three brothers because they didn't want to risk anybody else ruling. They left these two little boys alive, two other nephews of Constantine. And one of them was this boy called Julian. And so Julian, after all the sons of Constantine have died, he is the next in line for the throne. He comes to the throne. He is emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And everybody's sort of holding their breaths. Is he going to be Arian? Is he going to be Orthodox? Is he going to support these nouveau Arian bishops who are in Constantinople, Antioch, and Alexandria? Is he going to bring back the old patriarchs? What's he going to do? And Julian comes to the throne and he says, surprise, I'm not actually a Christian. I don't care about any of this stuff. Julian is a diehard, old-school pagan. He worships the sun. He worships a sort of military god called Mithras. He worships all the old-school Greco-Roman pagan deities. That is his thing. And so he's thinking about how to get rid of Christianity and bring back the old gods. And he thinks, okay, there's all this dissension among Christians. What if I just try and give them enough rope and let them hang themselves? Maybe if I just allow everybody to come back from exile, allow everybody to come back to their old, their old jobs as bishops and so forth, 
maybe this will just create so much chaos, Christianity will just disappear in a whirlwind of infighting. So that's what he does. But it doesn't actually work out very well because the vast majority of people are supporting Nicene Orthodoxy and because even these hardcore Arians and these hardcore Orthodox are still Christians. And for the most part, in lots and lots of places, they just sit down and talk together. And they're like, well, I believe this. Well, I believe this. Why do you believe that? Oh, that's interesting. So it's not like they just burn down each other's churches and it is this all-out war that destroys Christianity. Julian doesn't care. He's too busy building old temples, uh, erecting sacred groves, and doing whatever it is that he wants to do to reestablish the worship of the old gods in the empire. But his life is pretty short. He goes on this campaign in the east, and he dies in warfare. And there are stories which say that the spear came not from his enemies, but from his own troops, because he was not wildly popular among the non-pagan section of the empire. After Julian, you get a slew of emperors, some of them for a very short time, some of them reign longer, one of them dies in battle, and the first one is very Nicene Orthodox, the next one is very Arian, it just kind of bounces back and forth. The Arians continue to kind of have the upper hand for the most part politically, the Orthodox continue to have the upper hand among the actual faith of all the Christians on the ground. Things go back and forth until you get to Theodosius I. Theodosius I comes to power in 379, and he says from the outset, I'm going to be clear, I am not an Arian. I am a Nicene Christian. I am Orthodox. I believe in the mystery of God. I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, even though that's way too big to wrap my brain around. I don't want some reductionism. I want the real deal. And so he starts making sure that the Orthodox bishops uh, get to go back into their sees if they've been exiled, that if there are these sort of, if they've come back from exile and there's a rival bishop, that they are returned to their rightful place. And in 381, he calls another ecumenical council. He calls a council of all the bishops from all over the world. Now, if you tried to call a council of all bishops in my church or in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church, you could do it because there are airlines that go everywhere. So even if you're a bishop in New Guinea, you can fly to London or whatever it is. Everyone might not be able to make it, but the majority of folks at least would have the possibility of going. In the ancient world, this was a much bigger challenge. And this council does not get the gargantuan turnout, I think, that that we might picture when we think of an ecumenical council of the whole church. So you have about 185 bishops present, and at the very outset of the council, about 30 of them, 35 of them, see which way the wind is blowing, and they're like, oh, we're out of here because this is not going to go very well for us Arians. So you basically have a council, ultimately, of about 150 bishops. But they are from all over the place. They represent a huge geographic diversity in different kind of segments of the empire. You have really important figures from different places. So it is considered one of the great ecumenical councils of the church. This is one of the councils that's been affirmed by all these different branches of Christianity, from the Orthodox to Roman Catholics to Anglicans, Episcopalians, same thing, um, to Lutherans. Like Everybody recognizes the second ecumenical council, the Council of Constantinople. 
in a lot of these councils, we have what are called the acts of the council. We have the kind of um, public transcription of what went down at the council. For Constantinople, unfortunately, we don't. However, we do have this amazing document, which is a letter written in 382, the year after the council, from a bunch of bigwigs at the council to a bunch of bigwigs who are not able to be there. And it is an official summary of what happened at the council. So this is where our, our records come from. We also have accounts from three different church historians, ancient historians, that were writing around the same time, and they're all in agreement with what this letter records. So we can we trust this as an official document of the council summarizing what happened in the council. We will get into all the exciting theological disputes and everything that went down at this council next time, but just as a preview, I will tell you, things go poorly for the Sabalians, the Nemaramaki, the Apollinarians... Arius is, of course, once again roundly condemned, and they take the Nicene Creed and they rewrite the whole thing, such that the Creed from 325 is almost unrecognizable. And this, the different version, the Constantinople version, is the version that liturgical churches like mine and the Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, Lutherans, say every single Sunday. So this council is huge in its impact, and they do a bunch of other things. So next time, we will get into the controversies of the council, the nuts and bolts, everything that happens at the very exciting Council of Constantinople. Join me next time for this riveting conclusion.